Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Poisonous Muse by Sarah L. Crosby. Dr. Crosby is an associate professor at Ohio State University's Department of English. Professor Crosby. Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Poisonous Muse by Sarah L. Crosby. Dr. Crosby is an associate professor at Ohio State University's Department of English. Professor Crosby, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying American literature to 1900? Um, well, I'm from an island off the coast of Louisiana, uh, Grand Isle, and my family's been in there in the same house for 200 years. Uh, so I ended up going to graduate school at Notre Dame as a medievalist, and I got seduced by uh, a, a class on Edmund Burke, and you know, just the beauty, beauty of his language and the issues he was bringing up with, uh, you know, just the political structures of the modern world. Uh, so that's, that's what really got me interested in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and yeah, and then I just, I got pulled into questions about female themes in, you know, 19th century American literature. Uh, I kept wondering why they kept showing up. Uh, why female poisoners, women who poison men, seem to show up everywhere from what we would consider canonical or high literature uh, through popular or ephemeral literature like trial transcripts, newspapers, um, sort of occasional poetry. It, they were everywhere. And I just became fascinated as to what were they doing there. So that's how Poisonous Moons happened. Okay. Um, but answers the next question of how you went from being a medievalist to your current work <laughs> on poisonous muse. Um, let's jump to the next question. Could you give us a brief history of the poisonous woman? How has poison and the metaphor of poison historically fit into periods where the ruling class is threatened by social upheaval? Well, uh, the idea that women are poison or, or are poisoners it's pretty much the central idea of misogyny, you know, that our bodies are somehow uh, deadly or contaminating and corrupting, um, and you extend that fairly quickly to women or poisoners, and that we are more, you know, in Reginald Scott's wording, uh, naturally addicted to poisoning. And, of course, this is nonsense. I mean, <laughs> the statistics do not bear out any of that. 
that women poison more than men. Um, but it's become kind of a thing we know about women, that women just poison more than men. But modern statistics show that it's pretty much a 60-40 split, still favoring men as poisoners. Uh, and probably in the antebellum era, it was even uh, a greater divergence, more like 70-30. Now we have uh, this the really important criminologist, Otto Pollock, who in 1950 wrote a book on the, the criminality of women. And he says, ah, 6.3 out of every 10 women in America in the 19th century, uh, or 6.3 out of every 10 poisoners were women in 19th century America. And so I started track, trying to track down this statistic because I thought this is pretty powerful. Um, and it's it goes back to some really uh, popular science sensational book in 1930 that didn't have any footnotes. Um, and there was no way he could have come up with this statistic because we just didn't have the hard data and the cases that were collected from that time period. So he made it up, basically. Um, and so this, our whole conception of women as poisoners is based on kind of ancient and medieval ideas of our bodies as being poisonous and deadly. And then, you know, we just continue out with made up ideas about us being more poisonous and more given to poison. So, that's that being the case, why? You know, why is that uh, a myth that we stick to? And I mean, I think the the sort of the subjugation of women is the model for the subjugation of you know fill in the blank uh, slaves, workers, whoever. So it helps maintain that model and justify it, um, so that. And later centuries, you find a concern about slaves being given to poison, naturally addicted to poisoning, um, or industrial workers. And these sorts of anxieties show up, uh, and it gives them it gives the powerful an excuse to clamp down on unrest, um, because really there aren't any. You, what you see if you really look at the history is you don't see waves of poisoning so much as you see waves of anxiety about poisoning and waves of law enforcement. So let me give you uh, an example. Uh, in 19th century Britain in the 1840s, there was a pretty severe depression called, the, you know, the starving 40s or the hungry 40s. And there was a lot of anxiety about among the ruling class that maybe you know, the people who are starving and angry might do things like, I don't know, demand a vote or threaten their power. So what ended up happening was all this sort of media attention focused on this supposed poison ring led by the evil Sarah Chesum, um, who was reportedly training vast numbers of women in how to poison their husbands. Um, and so she was hanged. And there was a lot of hysteria about her. Uh, but, you know, the latest histories about her investigate this and they go, she probably poisoned her husband. But there was no vast conspiracy of women, you know, to poison their husbands. And, you know, but elite anxieties were very clear on this. Like, you come up with um, McKay's 
Popular Delusions, who's in this famous book. And he's concerned that these, you know, these poor women are going to train upper class women in how to poison their husbands and then, you know, bring down, you know, Victorian Britain. Um, so, and I guess also there's, the, you know, even older sort of story about how I mean, to justify hierarchy, to justify a patriarchal vision of hierarchy, where the father figure is the great protector, because what is he? What does he? Uh, what does he protect us from? In a lot of cases, it's you know the scary evil woman. So, uh, take for instance, and this is an important poisonous snake woman story, um, the story of the Lamia. I don't know if you're familiar with the figure of the Lamia. Um, she is an ancient kind of boogeyman from Greek folklore who gets turned into later on into this more uh, snaky woman who's very similar to Lilith. And she starts off like eating babies and making terrible farts and all sorts of disgusting things. But then later on she moves into becoming this kind of succubus figure. Um, <clears throat> and there's this story of by Philostratus around 220 uh, writing about a philosopher named Apollonius who encounters the Lamia. And the Lamia is in the process of seducing one of his pupils. Um, and what Apollonius does is he spots her and he calls her out and thus saves the young man from, um, you know, following his lust into an identification with this powerful woman. Right, so he saves him. You know, he saves the people who would be cannibalized by this evil woman, and the people comes back uh, under his tutelage and presumably becomes a good philosopher in his turn. And so this is an example of like you know the justification of this kind of homosocial uh, transfer of authority. Right, it's like you it works and it is necessary because otherwise the evil woman will get you. Right, and anyway, but that's. And so this is the, the, the story of the Lamia is actually important to later questions I'm going to get into. Why was American print culture in the decades immediately following Andrew Jackson's first presidential bid saturated with the trope of women who use poison to kill men? How can we use the metaphors that appear in popular print to better understand historical cultures? All right, well, let me tackle the first question. Um, in late, uh, late 18th century Britain, 19th century Britain, uh, the metaphor of poison was consistently applied to popular print, to demonize any print that escaped elite top-down control. And then, you know, for, for writers as well, right? So Thomas Paine, for instance, gets called a poisoner. Because he, he, not just because he expressed kind of democratizing ideas, but because he did so in a way that the masses could understand and that appealed to the masses and he became popular. Um, so, but what we have in Jacksonian America is a very different ideological and political setup where you have um, the advent of Jacksonian democracy that is ideologically devoted to the popular. If you had to pick out any dogma, that would be the Jacksonian America. And of course, it has all these problems with it, right? Because who gets to be the popular, right? It's 
common, quote unquote, white men. And that's pretty much it. Um, so, but still, at least in theory, um, devoted to the spread of popular sentiment, and that is the basis of democracy. Uh, so we have this kind of information revolution where you know, Jackson in America is really devoted to things like the postal service, and, and we're not going to have copyright because we want this free flow of information, and everyone has a right to this, and this is the basis of the republic. Um, like 80% of the civil service right, is devoted to the postal service, which is just crazy to think of that now. Um, so, but therefore, we're really culturally tied to Britain and kind of have an inferiority complex culturally with Britain going on, and especially it doesn't help with the British saying things like, who reads an American book? No one, because they're terrible. Um, so, you have this kind of attempt to deal with that metaphor of poison. Um, gosh, are we poisonous because we all you know, we believe in this popular stuff and everything's a free-for-all? Oh, yeah, Jack. Uh, or, you know, if you're John Neal, who I, I love, he's really interesting, um, Jacksonian critic, he goes over to Britain and pretends to be British to get into one of their reviews, and then he writes one of these articles refuting that whole who reads an American book. Uh, and the metaphor that he goes after in that is poison. And he says about American writing, let us have poison. You know, let's do it. Let's embrace it. Because poison, it's not just evil, it's power. So he kind of flips the metaphor around. He uses that sort of secondary connotation of it. And that's what he's going to emphasize. And that's how he's going to reframe popular writing. It's like, yeah, it's poison. But poison can be medicinal. Poison can be powerful. And let's just have this kind of free flow. And yeah, us popular writers, we're going to be poisoners. Um, and the female poisoner in particular kind of stood in for the popular author. And so I think that's why she shows up so often in American writing. Because, you know, the Jacksonian area, because they're trying to figure out what type of writers are we going to be? What, what, a, what is a popular print culture going to look like? What's a popular author going to look like? And so they use the metaphor of the female poisoner as popular author uh, to debate the parameters of that authorship. You know, who gets to be included in this? You know, who gets to be an author? What do they get to say? Um, and that's, I think that's why she shows up all over. Now let's do your second question. Um, Using metaphors to investigate uh, past cultures. Uh, I, I take a lot of this from George Lakoff, um, and you know, who, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, he a while back he wrote a book essentially to the Democratic Party, saying, you know, here's how to win, and here's how to frame things. Uh, but he's a, a cognitive linguist and. He, his basic premise is that we understand abstract com uh, concepts like democracy, writing, you know, through these kinds of linked metaphors that start with kind of embodiment. So from, you know, poison woman writing um, would be a nice conceptual frame for understanding, you know, for kind of a worldview on the popular. Um, 
But I think if you want to understand, so if you want to understand what a culture is preoccupied by, what it's trying to figure out, it really helps to be able to pay attention to the metaphors it's chewing on. Because that's, that's where the frames are shifting. That's where the worldview is shifting. Um, so you can kind of think of, of metaphors as kind of fossil cognition. You just go look, you just become a fossil hunter, basically. And that's what I try to do here with uh, the poisonous women. Could you discuss how the rules in the battle over democratic literature in Jacksonian America were laid down in Britain, particularly between Keats and his critics? <sighs> okay. Um, I think for most of the Jacksonian era, um, mainstream popular writers and critics kind of took a third option that wasn't Keats and his critics, but we'll come, we'll come back to him. And so I'll, I'll swear I'll explain this. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if you know the story about Keats. Once upon a time, <laughs> there was a wonderful young writer named you know, John Keats, and he wrote this beautiful romantic poetry, and the mean old conservative reviews who ran literature in Britain wrote a vicious review of his poem Endymion, and it hurt him so much he died. And that's, you know, that's the story that's told about him, by his friends, by his enemies, and this is the sort of image we still have here. That's not quite true. I mean, he died of tuberculosis, but the criticism didn't bug him that much either. Um, so, because Keats, he was a, he was very smart, and he was working uh, the metaphorical frames. And let me explain this. Um, there's in Britain, in Europe, there's kind of been this long conflict between what you would consider maybe church-sponsored authoritative discourse and a more secular, audience-centric, uh, popular discourse. And this is a long-standing conflict. And the romantics pick up on this, on the side of the secular, the audience-centric. Right? And particularly that second generation of romantics that Keats belongs to. Um, but... More specifically, the fight over over that, you know, what is literature, comes down to a fight between uh, this second generation of romantics and what we would consider uh, followers of Edmund Burke. Um, so 1757, Edmund Burke writes uh, inquiry into the origins or uh, ideas of the sublime and the beautiful, and this becomes the aesthetic standard for uh, 19th century Britain, 18th and 19th century Britain. And the reason it does is because it gives you an aesthetics that really, really backs up this kind of uh, hierarchical, monarchical version of power. Right? So it's, it's self-reinforcing. So he says basically great writers are writers who write the sublime. Okay? And the sublime is, number one, manly. Number two, overwhelms you, overwhelms the reader so that they're too stunned for their critical faculties to operate. And this is how kingship should operate, right? It should be awe-inspiring so that you can't think, you just obey. 
And that's what their version of great writers. So great writers, you know, the critics of, of Keats pointed out, great writers should be men of power. Or they should be men from the elite classes who write in this sublime, overpowering way. And Keats was like, no, I don't want to do that. That's ridiculous. That's anti-democratic. That's not what I'm about. What he was about was beauty, which was about common things, feminine things. And it was meant to be um, more democratic in that it invokes your critical faculties so that the audience should be able to interpret um, and join in, in a way. And this is this is really his goal. If you look at his letters, this, it's very he's very explicit about that. But what happens is, in the wake of the fiasco around Endymion, uh, which I love Endymion, it's, it's a beautiful poem. It's this, you know, it's about this young man who explicitly rejects kingship and power to go chase after a goddess, and he finds his. And because he does that, his goddess says, "You know what? I'm going to make you a god." And but we'll be God and Goddess together, and it's this mutual, beautiful, you know, loving poem. And the critics hated this, and they savaged him, and they said, you know what? You, you're. They basically said you're not a man of power. You're from the lower classes. Go back to the apothecary shop where you belong. Uh, before, if people follow you, our governesses are going to try to write poetry to us. And that's not. This is for men only, and it's this, you know, for powerful men. Um. And so Keats. He didn't mind that, but what he was really upset about was people followed those reviews and listened to this. And so he's like, no, okay, I get it, I get it. What people want is they want a cockfight, right? And if, even if they want this, you know, this beautiful democratic aesthetic, they still want power in it. And so he says, you know, how do I do that? And his answer is he writes this poem called Lamia, which is about a snake woman. The, the Lamia, right? He reinterprets Philostratus' Lamia. And in his version of it, however, she's basically, you know, she's heroic. She's a, in some ways the victim of, you know, Apollonius instead of this monster. And what he's trying to do with this is invest the beautiful with power. So you can have this kind of democratic, common aesthetic but it can, you know, he says he wants something that will give him sensation that will burn people, right? Um, and this is really where Poe picks up, the ground Poe. Um, he loves, he loves, loves, loves Keats. And you understand, Poe didn't love anybody. He was uh, the tomahawk critic. And most of Americans, uh, most American writers saw Keats as this weak, wimpy, effeminate character who we shouldn't write like him. But Poe saw Keats as the ideal poet of the beautiful and uh, who would produce this kind of democratic aesthetic uh, for popular authorship. And so he really, he picks up on Keats and he rewrites Lamia essentially as Lygia and he gives it a happy ending because Keats's Lamia ends with Lamia dead when it's this parable about, you know what, don't, don't give up your poison you know, don't give up your power to fit into this structure, this hierarchical structure. Because uh, that's Lamia's, that's what Lamia does. Is she gives up her poison to become this weak woman and is thus able to be destroyed. Um, Lygia adds a third act to that. Which, you know, not to give away the ending too much. But <laughs> uh, she comes back in triumph. 
Could you talk about Edgar Allan Poe's Lygia and answer a few questions you pose in your work? Why did Poe single out a female poisoner as the central figure in his best tale? How did a revamped romantic Lamia facilitate his authorial mission? What, in other words, made Lygia such an exemplar of Poe's aesthetic ideal? I love I love reading Poe's letters uh, so much because you can really see the wheels working for him. And he was very, very frustrated that Lygia was not recognized as the masterpiece of genius that it was. And he keeps trying to get it to become the centerpiece of his collected works, his collected tales. And the editors who do this, and Everett Deitching, is just not interested in Lygia. They're interested in his detective fiction, which he's like, fine, they're ingenious, but they're not works of genius. And the reason his detective fiction is Poe is the founder of, you know, the modern detective story, essentially. And he says, you know, they're ingenious, but they're not genius because what's, what's so smart about unraveling a tale that you've already, that you've created, right? There's nothing really smart about that detective. Um, and also it's frustrating because it, it's a too burking for him, right? Because it makes the audience in awe of the great writer, um, and it doesn't give them anything for their brains to work on because the ending is all wrapped up and nice and neat. And he complains about this in Charles Dickens' work and you know, various other places. Lygia, however, um, let me, well, let me tell you the story. Lygia has been the most frustrating story to read since it was written. <laughs> I mean, uh, his contemporaries were frustrated by it, and critics have spilled so much ink about about it, and they cannot figure out what the heck happens in this story, even just the basics. So basically, here's, here's the story, uh, as far as we can tell. Again, it's one of Poe's first-person narrators who is obviously kind of nuts, and you can't believe him. Uh, and he's married to this woman named Lygia, who's this tall, broad forehead, black-haired uh, genius, you know, who leads him in all these studies of philosophy. And, um, he doesn't know her last name, and he doesn't know anything about her, but he, all he does is stare into her eyes trying to fathom her mystery. So he's a philosopher. He's he's like Apollonius, trying to figure out her mystery and pin her down. And it it's and all all the staring, just like Apollonius staring at Lamia, kills her. And she she just she dies of this more or less. Um and in his frustration, because now he can't figure anything out, he goes off and he he doubles down on this mastery model of himself. He he buys an English abbey and he fills it with uh, these ridiculous uh, orientalist signs of his power. And he marries a, a, an aristocratic wife and, and abuses her. So again, he's like showing his power again and again. And she starts wasting away. And he's, you know, high on laudanum now all the time. And he notices there are three or four drops of ruby fluid that fall into her cup from a shadow, and she drinks it. And 
So is that poison? Yes, probably, right? It's probably laudanum because her symptoms are like a laudanum overdose. Uh, but she, when she dies, she's, she comes back as Lygia, right? So the, the abused second wife now is, comes back as the scary first wife who ends up towering over, uh, the narrator as he shrieks in horror and kneeling down, right? Okay. So no one knows exactly what's going on with this story. Like, does Lygia come back for real? If she does, is she there to kill the narrator? Uh, you know, is, you know, what does the story mean? No one's been able to really pin this down. And Poe thinks that's fabulous, right? Because it requires the audience, like, critics can't pin it down, so the audience actually has to work it out in their own interpretation. Um, because he thinks this, this sort of, that genius happens, in this kind of circuit between the writer and the audience. Um, so, and if you have this sort of, he really hated the idea of these kind of Burkean critics, these, what he called the men of talent who interfered with the men of genius, you know, the people with money coming in between him and his audience. And he kept trying to find ways around them, and he could never get the funds together to produce his own magazine or anything like this. So, he did tried it with his aesthetic, which for him, you know, the, the reason he picked, I think, the figure of this sort of poisonous woman um, is because it, she is beautiful. She's female. She's a beauty. But he says he could in, he incorporated deformity in her, power in her that would allow her to come back and have revenge on these type of Burkean, you know, men of power that had, you know, supposedly killed Keats. Uh, so she becomes this kind of, and she, he makes her sound like him. He makes Lygia look like him, with the big, the big forehead and the hair and everything. So she becomes this kind of the poison woman, as model of the author that can overcome the Burkean critics and have that connection, direct connection to the audience. So for him, he's like, that's what Jacksonian literature needs to be. That's what popular literature needs to be. This is not what... Uh, mainstream, uh, writers went with. And this is, this is Poe's own version of the romantic poisoner. And she, this romantic poisoner became very important, like in the 1850s, when women start writing, uh, the female poisoner and recapture her. Because women wouldn't go anywhere near the female poisoner for a very long time because it was too dangerous. Right, is if you write about a female poisoner, it's too easy to have people interpret that as the writer, the woman writer being this, this nasty poisonous woman, and too easy to sort of push that back into the sort of patriarchal version of the nasty lamian. So women writers wouldn't touch it with a tinker pole. Uh, but, but Harriet Beecher Stowe will, and in part due to what Poe was able to do for her, to make her this sort of powerful hero. Um, but that, again, in, Mainstream Jackson in America, that's not what they were interested in doing. <laughs> the problem with Lygia and the, the image at the end of the story is of this uh, female figure standing over a presumably white man, and he's, you know, disempowered and shrieking, and she's alive and in power. And throughout the story, she's been coded even as perhaps mixed race. So... 
Poe's friend, Philip Cook, writes to him going, don't, shouldn't you kill her, like, at the end? Because I don't like this idea of her being alive there and scary. Uh, because that models, you know, here's, uh, here's a vital, living figure of a woman, perhaps mixed-race people, who, who should have discursive power. Man, and that, as he, you know, Poe says, violated the ghostly proprieties. Uh, you're not supposed to have that kind of empowered female figure. Um, and this is one, so one thing about Jacksonian writers is they love the romantics and they encourage all sorts of ideas for the romantics. But one thing they didn't do was they left all their kind of femme fatales, fatal women, powerful, you know, anti-heroines over on the other side of the Atlantic. I think they were not, this was not, Poe was the only one to bring them over, really. Um, and because it was, yes, they wanted to have poison, but it needed to just be common white men who had it. You know, if they're going to have the power of poison, women, minorities better not have it, because you know, that's discursive power. Uh, so what they did was they developed something called, which I call the democratic female allegory, and I'm basing some of this on work by Mary Ryan and, and other people who noted that uh, the democratic party, which dominated uh, the culture of Jacksonian America, they it was, you know, it was, it was a white male party, right? That's that's who got to go. Um, and everyone else is excluded. But they kept using imagery of women. So it's sort of the allegories of women. And so what is, what's going on with this? Um, let me think how to express this. Andrew Jackson was an SOB. In many, many ways, not a good person. But he was very good at telling powerful stories. And one of his great inventions uh, was the adaptation of an earlier kind of Republican smaller female allegory to the Democratic Party into their hegemony. So this Democratic female allegory. And the basic idea was that democracy uh, was in peril from these corrupt elites who would try to steal it. And it required good democratic men to step in and save them, save democracy. And it's just like, right, you need, you know, these corrupt elites are going to try to rape these poor innocent women or slander them in some way, and you need good democratic men to step in and protect the innocent, innocent womanhood. So you see how it's kind of a, a weird inversion of the allegory you get from Philostratus or, you know, whereas power is justified by the need to protect young men from the evil woman, right? Now it's like the young men need to protect the innocent woman from the evil father figure, from the evil elite. Um, and that's the story they were telling. And it was very powerful because it went through several layers, right? It wasn't just about uh, the electoral college. It was also, or it was also about you know, gender and representation of women, care for women. So what they did was 
the, the, the story they were trying to tell was not that there were evil women, but that whenever you see an evil woman, she's just slandered and misrepresented by these corrupt elite men. And the good democratic man will see through these lies and see that, in fact, she's just this innocent, powerless little maiden. You know? um, and so that was the story they told, and that was the one that backed up you know, their hegemony. Right? Uh, so they were really invested in making poisonous women disappear. Right? So the democratic poisoner, or the capital D, um, is kind of this weird Scooby-Doo figure. <laughs> you know how, like, at the end of Scooby-Doo, the monster mask is taken off, and it's not a monster, it's just a person? Well, just imagine, like, the stories they tell are constantly this unmasking of this, oh, it's a poisonous woman. Oh, no, look, she's just an innocent woman that you corrupt men were messing with. So this story is repeated and repeated and repeated. And, and this, you know, this justified their, their power. Could you talk about Hannah Kinney's story? Well, Hannah Kinney, probably one of my favorite people in Jacksonian America, uh, she's, I just find her fascinating. And her story is fascinating because she's so uh, rigorously normal. <laughs> How she became the most uh, important and influential, you know, female poisoner in Jacksonian America is just, it's, it's just a strange story. Um, Okay. Hannah Kinney, August 9th, 1840. Her third husband dies uh, in Boston, George Kinney. And, you know, he's, they take him out to do an autopsy, and immediately like, they find arsenic in his stomach. And the doctors start blabbing around town that, you know, he'd been poisoned. And so the neighborhood jumps on. Hannah saying, oh, she must have done it. And this starts the wheels of prosecution going. Because Hannah had been, had a bit of a questionable reputation in history, because again, this is husband number three. Um, she married her first husband, Ward Whittem, had children with him, divorced him after he abandoned them, um, then married husband number two, who is a minister um, in Lowell, Massachusetts. And his congregation hated the idea that a divorcee would be marrying their minister. But he dies exactly a year after they're married of some, what they assumed was uh, cholera. But cholera and arsenic were a hell of a lot alike. So what you ended up getting was you got reports coming in from Lowell and the Whig papers there uh, saying, ah, oh, she's this evil poisoner and, it's just the stories are hilarious because they they seem like that reports are saying that she's fascinating in her eyes and you know that she could just you know she's the second Cleopatra and you know she just can hypnotize men with her beauty and you know meanwhile she makes hats and she's just like this you know a mother of and and so the Democratic papers you got to understand this is the era of the partisan press right there's a very tight linkage between government and the, these sort of fighting papers. Um, and the partisan press was supposed to be interested in politics. Right? The penny press, which was just sort of emerging at this time, 
you know, these sort of independent papers, they were the ones who were supposed to be interested in sensation and crime and developed the sort of the interview and these long, you know, running stories on, about crime on the front pages. Uh, the partisan press wasn't supposed to do that. But Hannah Kinney became major cause celeb for them. And it, the only reason for this is that she was a political issue. So you have the Whig papers, you know, playing up this Lamia story about her, this very Philostradian version of her. And the Democratic papers are going like, whatever. Yeah, okay. I mean, most basically ignore it. Um, but then they get the idea that maybe she's innocent. And then she becomes a front-page phenomenon. Like in the Boston Morning Post, which is Jackson's outlet in Boston, just go crazy with the story. And they use Hannah to blast the Whigs and all these other papers and basically say, you know, you're trying to torture this poor, rigorously normal woman. She's no Cleopatra. You know, she's, she's just, she's just a very sweet tempered woman and she's innocent and you and, you know, all these doctors and these elite men are getting together to destroy her and we Democrats are going to step in and protect her. Um, and so that's basically what filtered into the trial argument. The Boston Morning Post ran the transcript on its front pages and produced an independent pamphlet. Uh, There's actually an American state trial. So I don't know if you read those anymore, lawyers. <laughs> but uh, so so Hannah Kenny became a big sensation because she was a way for these kind of political camps to fight out. Uh, the Lamia versus the innocent Democratic poisoner, quote unquote, story, you know, and to reinforce that innocent woman victimized the Democratic female allegory. Um, and by, the thing is, Democrats really did frame most of, you know, cultural stories and they were really culturally dominant. Um, so by the end of this, the Whigs are kind of embarrassed into like, oh yeah, okay, I guess she wasn't a Lamia. Sorry. Um, we didn't, but we find her interesting. <laughs> and so everyone got on board and she was declared innocent because really there was no, it was, there was no real evidence for it. Um, and her lawyers were able to find uh, a kind of melodrama villain with the twirling of the mustache even, uh, called Dr. Hildreth, who for some reason was trying to like plant evidence and get her prosecuted and, and convicted. And, um, so that, that helped along the lines. And then, you know, the whole medical community was terribly embarrassed by all of this. And, um, so, you know, Democrats won on this one. So this Hennekin is story. There was another female poisoner earlier in American history named Lucretia Chapman who also became greatly interesting to the press and public. Why did these two women, Lucretia Chapman and Hannah Kinney, attract so much attention? Well, during uh, Hannah Kinney's trial, uh, one of the prosecutors complained very, very sadly uh, about how hard it is to convict women accused of poison in America. Uh, and he cited, you know, a couple, like, here's, Take these examples of three different female poisoners, you know, recent memory. And, but only two of them were recent, right? So, and that both of those were really, really guilty. 
There was just no question that they, I mean, one confessed and the other, it was, yeah, it was just very clear cut. But neither of them were convicted. And he complained, and so I thought, you know, yep, you have a right to complain about that. Um, but the third one was not recent memory. It was 10 years before this. Um, Lucretia Chapman. Uh, but she lived on in memory because unlike the other two who were clearly guilty and were basically ignored by the papers, she had reams and reams of, of print about her because it didn't, her guilt was not clear at all. And in fact, she probably was innocent. Um, and she, she got off too, which is, you know, good because being probably innocent, right? Um, but, do you want me to tell you her story? It's fascinating to you, or am I going on too long? No, it's fine. <laughs> okay, I think right. it's a, a good yeah. story to add. Uh, okay, so Lucretia Chapman runs this, uh, essentially she's a teacher, and she runs this little boarding school. Um, and one day she and her husband are visited by this fellow who says that he is the son of the governor of California. Um and so, and he says, hey, if you let me move in with you, my father will pay you lots of money for helping me learn English. And they think this is a great deal. Um, he must have been a fantastic con artist because this is such a ridiculous story. You think, who would believe it? But they did. Um, and then things get weird. It uh, does... Because Mr. Chapman, Lucretia's husband, ends up dying of arsenic poison. And Lucretia marries, you know, their boarder, Mina, the con artist. And so the question is, was she involved in the poisoning or not? And there's no evidence that she was. I mean, Mina bought arsenic, had opportunity. So there's this kind of, you can follow it. And then he runs off and tries to, uh, he steals off her silverware, tries to sell her property, and then tries to marry her cousin while he's still married to her. So, you know, not the greatest guy ever. I don't think necessarily we should trust him. Um, but when he's in, you know, they're both arrested for the murder of Mr. Chapman. And Nina is convicted because, you know, they can follow the, the poison from him. Um but he writes this really nasty pamphlet about her where he basically says that she is a lamia. You know, that he was this innocent youth, right, who went to Philadelphia and he runs into her and she, instead of like running to school, she was obviously prostituting herself in Philadelphia and running around stealing stuff. And he had all these jewels, these wonderful jewels, and she stole them all. And he got thrown in prison for thieving, but no, he wasn't really the thief. Um, and so she's this this kind of painted woman figure who seduces young men and destroys them. Uh, if and if only he had a father figure who could take care of him, he wouldn't have done this. So it's you know it's a Philostratus narrative, right? And versus you know what was done at trial, which was you know this is an innocent woman who was conned by this corrupt man. And, but there was enough ambiguity and enough question and that these sort of clash between these two narratives um, played out that this is really the thing that drew people in is they love this sort of clash between the innocent democratic poisoner and the lamia. 
And this, the question of which one is it, what is she, um, has so, so many sort of political consequences and larger consequences to how, you know, we define power and you know, the popular that people were drawn to this. So 10 years later, they're still talking about Lucretia Chapman. And she was acquitted, but, you know, still, there's this, there's question. And it's that epistemological, like, is she or isn't she? Which, which side of, which, which worldview do we go with? Uh, that draws her in. The same thing that drew in people to Hannah Kinney and made the connection between the two. How did Hannah Kinney become a vessel for framing and debating events in Jacksonian America? Oh. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I mean, on some just very shallow level, in a way, you know, how when the O.J. Simpson trial, everything was, every all the jokes, everything was about O.J. and, you know, the same thing happens with Hannah Kinney. Like she becomes a real quick commonplace, of, a quick way of doing a joke. Um, and so we have, for instance, I, one of my favorites is like the customs officer, the report of Boston is dismissed, and the paper uses her last words to her husband as a way of sending him off. Goodbye, George. You know, and then, ha ha, that's very funny, right? So she becomes this kind of cultural commonplace. But I think on a deeper level, it is that issue of what version of reality of the popular, of who we are, are we going to have? And if she's innocent, this backs up the kind of democratic female allegory that says that we are um, a democratic people who see through the corrupting manipulations of men of power. And that's how we reaffirm our citizenship. We are epistemological warriors for innocent women. So I think this is this is why she became important. And particularly, you know, the year 1840 had been kind of rough for the Democrats. Uh, <laughs> they basically lost their first presidential election in, in forever. How does Hannah Kinney's story illustrate that women are meant to be metaphors, not shapers of them? Okay. Well, Hannah Kinney, um, again, one of the reasons I love her, she uh, did something did something extraordinary. Was after her trial, she didn't disappear. Uh, she didn't just accept what people were making of her. Uh, she wanted to have some control over that narrative. And so she writes a memoir. And she says it's to answer continuing suspicions. And she really does go along with that sort of the Democratic allegories version of her, this innocent woman who is attacked by corrupt elite men. So she's fine with that. You know, she's she's like, yes, I endorse that narrative, and here I'm going to add to it. And... But she did make a mistake, right, in that she did it herself. And she went after the men who had attacked her herself. And she made her voice public. And this was not what they wanted, right? The innocent women need to be powerless, which means they need to be quiet. Right? And so, again, even her trial has caused her problems, right, because she had to tell. Um, her lawyers, things about her husband, George, 
right? Um, to give them alternate explanations for how the arsenic got there. So she had to tell them, yeah, George has syphilis. Yeah, George was taking all this, you know, medication from this irregular doctor, which guess what, had a lot of arsenic in it. Um, so she had to tell these sort of secrets and expose, you know, men's abuses, and including her first husband, right? In this memoir, she talks about, you know, how, well, he abandoned me and our children, and that's why I had to get divorced. And that, that made people very uncomfortable, because women were supposed to be the silent maidens who are saved, right? This is, it's about increasing the democratic white common man's authority, not we're leaving little openings for women to come through there and say, well, look, I can talk about my own victimization um, and, you know, thus have public power of speech in a writing. So the reaction to her coming into print, you would think, like, just imagine if, like, O.J. wrote something, you know, I mean, or what, I mean, people would be, they'd be like, oh, sensational, or, you know, I don't know, maybe I need to update my references. O.J.'s a little old, but, you know, you would think, you know, the newspapers and it would be spent months covering this, would be ecstatic about this continuing, you know, coverage, this new edition. But they were absolutely cold to this. And they, very few papers noted it. And the ones that did ran this really kind of passive-aggressive announcement where they basically said, yeah, we kind of wish you'd shut up. And, you know, it's kind of stunning. Um, and, you know, so, and they also, her husband, her first husband, Ward Whittem, also writes this really nasty, extremely lamia, Philostradian version of her, where she's this, you know, this nymphomaniac who murders babies and steals, and, you know, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's really over the top. And he pretend, you know, he puts himself in the place of Apollonius, warning, you know, young men against her evil. Um, and they don't like that either, right? So they basically say, yeah, he's probably a liar. Um, but they don't like that she's come out into print. And so, you know, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne puts this pretty well, you know, is that, uh, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne and Melville, where they basically are saying, you know, yeah, we don't like women's writing very much because it's this cute sort of sweet embroidery of things that just is, is, is nice but uh, it's it's very disturbing when women come out and tell the truth too right that it's 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 that's what men are supposed to do um, and that's what the democratic man is supposed to do that's democratic authorship where right is you come out and you see the truth behind appearances and you, but you can't have women doing that because if they can do that why can't they vote <laughs> Just, and who knows, maybe they can be legitimate authors after that. And, you know, it's just, so, yeah, shut her up, let's not read this. It would have been better. Would you please discuss the intersection of law and juries as representatives of the people and your assertion that people do not shape their behavior according to reason self-interest, but rather make decisions based upon more emotive and associational factors, particularly the frames to which they ascribe? Well, this is, this is again, George Lakoff. Um, a lot of his, you know, his work on this. Um, but, I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer. You are, you would know, you know. But it's, it seems like from my great experience with watching Law and Order, uh, that lawyers uh, need to create narratives 
right, that will convince a jury to go along with one side or the other. And um, and these narratives aren't uh, exempt from connection to metaphorical frames. You know, so you need to be able to sort of hit the right metaphor. Because here's the thing, we, we buy into uh, narratives as truth more than we buy into facts as truth. So it's, the frame is, is the thing that creates the truth, just because that's the way we operate, I think, as people, as human beings. Um, so it's really what story have people decided beforehand is a true story. Um, and, I, and I guess I didn't tell you too much about it, but I had a friend who was on a jury, and it was this concussion case. And he was really shocked at how quickly people were willing to buy into uh, the defense's story that it was all a scheme. And, and he's like, that's, but you look at what you know, the testimony is, and you look at, and, but it was just very, very quick to believe in this kind of conspiracy. Um, and so I, I don't know, I think that that to me was an issue of frames. Like which frame was more powerful? You know, the poor victim or the, you know, scamming victim? You know, or, so, I, I don't know, I think, I think if, I would like to see, you know, maybe your, your take on this too, as to which, you know, metaphors and which frames you find most effective to sort of, you know, depending on which side you are on. Because you know, that's how the Kinney jurors operate, or the Kinney um, lawyers operated, right? Is to, you know, which how which story is the jury going to buy? Is it going to be the Lamia or the innocent woman? And it just so happened that culturally ascendant was the in, innocent woman one, and they could really push that. One. Could you discuss E. E. Barclay's narrative and confession of Lucretia P. Cannon and how humbug fits into popular American culture? This is the dark side of the democratic allegory, right? And that, you know, we were talking just now about, like, this sort of conspiratorial thinking, right? Um, Jacksonian-era Democrats were trying to use a form of conspiratorial thinking to train people in the kind of critical thinking they needed to have in a republic and actually to create consensus around the protection of innocent womanhood and you know, and belief in the people's ability to discern the truth and trust in popular print is this uh, mecca where truth can be found. So these kind of three pillars. Okay, but the dark side of this is nihilism, right? Is that you trust no one, ultimately. Like, you keep moving with this conspiratorial thinking, and it all blows up. And everything, and so I think we see this more in the Internet era, right, where we have like this incredibly polarized discourse and where people, even the facts are not shared. Uh, and largely because of this kind of conspiratorial thinking that puts these, these narratives before actual facts and consensus. So E.E. E. Barclay, um, he's actually a very successful publisher uh, in the antebellum era. And his first venture is in 1841, a couple of months, just a couple of months after Hannah Kinney is acquitted. Um, he produces this crazy pamphlet about Lucretia Cannon, uh, who's this super crazy serial poisoner, murderess, um, runs this gang of killers, and you know, it's just she. If it were true, she would be really remarkable 
for antebellum era and for women, because we were really nice in the antebellum era. We didn't do anything really bad, you know, as far as homicide is concerned. Um, and he swears up and down in this pamphlet that this is true, and you can verify this, and these are the actual facts, and he just brings you what he calls truthful narratives. Um, and 99% of it is made up, right? Like, there was a Lucretia Cannon, but she didn't do any of this stuff. Uh, she didn't run some kind of murderous criminal gang. But these truthful pamphlets, he has people go around on steamships in various places and pawn them off as real. Um, and so you have, <laughs> I came across this Galesburg Female Reform Society in Indiana that read this pamphlet and were like, oh my gosh, these are the women we need to reform. Uh, so people were taking it as truth. And, but in fact, it was, it was humbug. And, and, this was a form of entertainment in 19th century America where, you know, P.T. Barnum, right, was probably the great proponent of it, the guy Barnum and Bailey Circus. But before that, he was known for doing these hoaxes and these, this kind of crazy museum where you'd have to figure out, is it a mermaid or is it a monkey sewn to a fish? I don't know. And But for him, that was the pleasure of humbug, is that it would train people, right, to think critically because they'd have to figure out how are they being hoaxed. Is it a hoax? And if so, how is it working? And that was sort of the fun of it. Now, that's interpretation one. Interpretation two is it actually confused people uh, about how they can determine what truth is. And they, so they couldn't trust anything. And ultimately, they end up being nihilistic cynics who trust no one, believe in nothing. Um, for Barnum and 19th century Americans, they were more nuanced with this. They were like, it's okay to have humbug about this stuff here, but it's not okay to have humbug about this other stuff. So do not have humbug about women. That's off limits because that will break up one of those pillars of consensus in you know, belief in women's innocence. So Barnum was very clear about this. The person who won't believe in women's innocence is what he called a fool, you know, this absolute cynic, and it's just the worst and he's going to destroy democracy. Um, so we have to have some moments of consensus and belief. But these pamphlets, I, I, you know, that's the next chapter of my book is I look at these, these crazy pamphlets that just become this, I don't know, tornado of, of BS. And, you know, they plagiarize each other and they change names and they change dates. So you have the same, you know, supposed real poisoner, uh, dying like three times in three different locales. And, you know, and they're just these, but they're sold as true. And I think this really, upset uh, a lot of people and a lot of especially the democratic uh, writers like Nathaniel Hawthorne who I think writes um, Rappuccini's daughter in part you know to try to slow down this kind of nihilism uh, you know George Lepard who writes a Quaker City and again you know I sort of in response to this uh, humbug's gotten out of control and particularly because they got upset about the election of 1840 where the Whigs got smart and started using democratic tactics. And, you know, so we're going to have a log cabin guy, too, and a common man, too. And he's and so when Henry Harrison wins the election, and that just blows the Democrats' minds for a while. And so sort of scrambling in response to this um, is sort of how do you, how do you deal with humbug? And you, one, one way to do is to reinforce that belief in the innocence of women and the democratic female allegory. Um, and which is what Hawthorne does with Rappuccini's daughter, 
And the other way is to just get even more sophisticated, which is what Lepard does. Uh, the Quaker City, by the way, is the biggest bestseller for Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in it, it stars a female poisoner. Um, and what Lepard's reasoning for it is, is she's really evil and bad. But it's because she'd been manipulated by men and had lost out on her first true love. So if only she, her female nature had been nurtured, you know, she would remain innocent. She just becomes a fiend, again, because of manipulations of bad men. So if you, so you preserve the female allegory and get to have evil women, too. So it's like this great, you know, workaround of the lame man uh, that sort of re-instantiates um, the democratic consensus. How does Barclay's later work, The Female Land Pirate, synthesize the romantic and democratic poisoners, absorbing the sensational rage-filled power of the former and turning it to serve the latter's allegory and agenda? Well, think back to Lygia. I mean, that amazing, vengeful figure, beauty empowered. Um, that's really exciting and titillating. Um, but she messes with the democratic allegory. So how do you meld the two? And what you end up with is the avenging poison, okay, who has that kind of the power and the, the sort of murderous sexiness of Lygia, but the reason she's turned all murderous is because men did her wrong. Okay. And she's going to avenge herself on them. And surprise, surprise, the men who did her wrong are the enemies of the democratic common man. So, you know, essentially the elites. And so she becomes this, the female land pirate follows the story of Amanda Benoris, uh, who starts off an innocent young girl and is taken care of by this rich man who marries her, supposedly. But then she finds out he didn't marry her, that he's actually a bigamist, and he's just, you know, using her for sex. And then she, you know, goes after him, you know, kills him and the madam that, you know, ran the house where she was, this elite house, right? And she goes, you know, and then she goes on this, this long, drawn-out kind of killing spree um, and ends the novel, you know, with, or the, the pamphlet, basically in prison saying, okay, you know, I'm writing you my story, but don't worry, I'm going to kill myself. So... I don't know if you're familiar with the series of, of Carol Clover, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is a great book. But she looks at, um, she would look at this, I think, and say that this is phallicization across gender means of identification because Amanda is not, she's female, and she, you know, but she's not feminist. Like she's really taking on uh, the white male agenda and going after his class enemies and things like this. And so she's not sticking around to live and produce a survivable identity or, you know, enforce a kind of feminist community or anything like that. For that, we're going to have to wait to Harriet Beecher Stowe in the 1850s. Um, so the Avenging Poisoner, in a way, I think, is, is kind of an attempt to diffuse that romantic poisoner and recapture her for the democratic allegory. Um, but it doesn't work real well because <laughs> eventually you have someone like Stowe come in and create a character like Cassie who is all of this avenging poisoner, but she lives and she protects other women and she stands there as an argument against white male supremacy. 
know, which is very different than the, hey, I'm going to kill some of your enemies and then get, my, get myself out the way so you don't have to worry about me, right? So, but, you know, that's the end of the Jacksonian era. For, you know, you have to wait for the next book for, <laughs> for the, the 1850s poisoner who becomes kind of a, finally a feminist figure for a while. To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. A lot of things. Uh, I, again, this book, The Poisonous Muse, ended up getting cut in half because I didn't realize books don't get to be, you know, thousands of pages. <laughs> uh, so, no, no, it's like thousands. But, so I have all of this um, stuff on where the poisoner goes after the avenging poisoner. It goes into this medicinal poisoner. Uh, so this, and into the vampire, eventually. Uh, so I'm thinking I want to look at that as a possibility. Um, but really, a lot of my thinking now has moved into this sort of eco-criticism. Um, what I really want to be doing, and what I'm researching now, is uh, a book about South Louisiana. And I don't know if you're aware of what's going on in South Louisiana, but essentially we are losing a football field of land every hour. Um, it's washing away into the Gulf of Mexico, and so you're going to end up with, like, waterfront property in Baton Rouge relatively shortly. And the reason for this is it's a man-made natural disaster. Uh, BP and Hurricane Katrina, those things should not have been as destructive to South Louisiana if it had not already been compromised by um, the work of the Corps of, um, Corps of Engineers, and the, the sort of dredging of the Mississippi and the levying that wouldn't that has certainly starved the marshes of sediment and fresh water. And also the oil companies have cut 10,000 miles of canals through the marsh and not filled them back in like they were supposed to. So this, again, you know, this allows saltwater intrusion and we're losing South Louisiana, which is the richest ecosystem essentially in the U.S. Um, and responsible for something like 30% of our oil and natural gas. And so that's, it's a huge problem. Um, and my question is why has that been allowed to happen, you know, since the 1930s? And I am hypothesizing it has something to do with kind of the eco-core uh, tropes that are connected to Louisiana. Like Louisiana is this scary marsh area where there's voodoo women and then there's swamp monsters. And, you know, so it's like that, that show Swamp People. Have you ever seen it? Like the intro to it drives me nuts because it, it talks about the farthest corner of the U.S. And I'm like, it's by Texas and Mississippi. It's the middle of the country, you know? So it's like almost like Louisiana is this un-American, spooky, weird place with hicks and swamp monsters. So anyway, I'm just, I want to write about that. And, you know, maybe have us think again about these stories associated with a place that's America and is essentially being destroyed and we're doing nothing about it. So anyway. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for asking. I had a great time. 